it's just a numbers game. You know, if, you, if you're consistently out there all day rowing in a beam sea with breaking waves, eventually one of them's going to get you. Right. Um, but, you know, they'd be breaking just in front of you, just behind you, um, you know, to the just before they get to you or just after you go past them. And all of, in all of those cases, you know, most of those cases, fine, wasn't a problem. It's when it it's when the, the they all align and it breaks literally as you are just sitting on top of it basically or just just before you get to it yeah um and it, then it breaks on top of the boat and pushes you over because the salt's hydroscopic so as soon as you get anything that that's that's uh, got salt on it i mean you can see salt crystals on the boat during the day the sun would dry them out and there'd just be a dry salt crystal and then as soon as the sun disappeared it would be a water droplet because right. the salt just sucks up the water in the atmosphere and it's a water droplet and that's exactly what's happening on my on my clothing and towels and stuff down below Welcome back, everybody, to the Strength Institute podcast. Today, we have a follow-up podcast with now world record holder Rob Barton, who just completed the very first solo, unassisted uh, rowing voyage from mainland Australia all the way to mainland Africa in just 86 days. So everyone is very excited to uh, to see how it went, to hear some perspective from you. Um, and uh, thank you for coming back onto the podcast. No, you're very welcome, Nevin. Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's yeah, great. My right. pleasure. Now, I've got a lot of questions to, 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 to start with. And, and actually, I think it's actually even more important to say, all right, so 86 days to get from mainland Australia to mainland Africa. Yep. Right? You were estimating anywhere between three and six months. I was, yeah. And you did it in just sub three months. I know. I know. It's, I, I Look, I was completely, well, I was, I was really surprised by the time. We did a lot of work before we left with uh, University of Western Australia. So UWA um, developed this data model for us. That, I mean, they did a whole load of analysis of, of, you know, of hindcast data looking back over the last 20 years. Yep. Um, and based on that data, they worked out the best point to leave from um, and also then the best route to take. And they, and every day we would put in our, oh, I had um, Neil on shore who was acting as my shore manager. Could you just go a little closer to the, yeah, perfect. Yeah, so every day Neil would be uh, would be plugging in the actual position that I was at. That would then go, get, um, go into this data model where they'd look at the weather forecast as it was gonna be for the next 10 days, two weeks. Um, they'd look at the hindcast data as it had been over the last 20 years. And off the back of that, they'd say, this is where we think you should go. So I got to Africa, I got to uh, Madagascar. Their, their model only worked to Madagascar. So I got to Madagascar in just over two months. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, you know, and then after that, we were kind of on our own. Right. Um, but, but to get to Madagascar in that, in that time was pretty incredible. Previous crossings, there'd been seven solo crossings previously. Um, and the only one that was faster than that uh, left in November and we couldn't leave in November because that was that would have mean that we'd be arriving at cyclone season in Africa mm. so it, it, you know weather conditions to leave in November would probably be good if we were only going to go to Madagascar or to Reunion Island or somewhere um, we'd have you know cracking following winds and we'd be able to do it. yeah it would have been very very fast well and 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 just a quick important to remind everyone that was listening just now is that the seven solo crossings have only been to to islands of of Africa so That's Reunion right. Island Mauritius Madagascar but none to to mainland you're the first to go mainland to mainland first to, first to go mainland non-stop there was one non-stop. guy who okay. stopped in Madagascar for three months but that's cheating that's, uh, yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't count that, clear, that, count, that yeah. clearly doesn't count um and and in 86 days now uh I kind of felt 
almost a little gypped. I was expecting this journey to go for longer. Yeah. Did yeah. you think about just doing a lap around Madagascar <laughs> before getting to the mainland just to make it worth your while? No, I have to say I was actually really pleased that it only took 86 <laughs> days. So, yeah, look, I mean, I, I, when, when I, I mean, in the first couple of weeks when I was going so well, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, enjoy it while it lasts because my expectation was, you know, I'd, I've read, I mean, Sarah Uten was the person who, whose book I read when she went to Mauritius and I think she did it in, I think it was 120 or 130 days or something. And I, and I always remember her getting stuck in this weather system that took her around in a great big circle in the middle of the ocean. Oh. And she was, you know, literally stuck there for over a month. Wow. Um, so, you know, that was my expectation. Um, so whilst I, would, I had a really good start, yeah, I, I kept thinking, oh, it's not going to stay like this. <laughs> well, no, I think, um, I think it's a good little comparison there. There was another team of rowers that sat out at a similar time, um, and there was four of them, and the, they went from from Australia to Mauritius, and it took them seventy days to get to Mauritius. Yeah. And if I if I if I am correct, because I followed along on the Rob's Row Facebook page, you passed Mauritius at around day sixty two. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So again, you seem very gracious and humble in after having done this, but would you like to talk any smack to this team of four that took eight days longer than you, even though there was four of them rowing and you did it, you know, just like a full week faster than them by yourself? Yeah. So look, I mean, they, they didn't leave from, I left from Carnarvon. So I had the benefit of the analysis from UWA. Um, they left from Geraldton. So I knew that to leave from Geraldton based on the UWA analysis that I think it would have taken an extra, I can't remember if they said 20 or 30% longer, but it, you know, it would have been a lot longer. Um, so that's the first thing where they left from. And when they left, I think they then ended up getting caught in the Lewin current, um, and they didn't have favorable winds. So, you know, I was lucky I, the day I, you know, I didn't leave on the day I wanted to, I waited, um, until there was favorable winds. And then when I left, I had following winds pretty much straight away. So I was, you know, I, I, I just was lucky with the weather. Yeah. Um, and they were very unlucky with the weather. You know, they spent days on sea anchor. Um, both at the start and also towards the finish, they had quite a bit of time on sea anchor as well. Right, right. See, see t you're, you're too kind, Rob. I was expecting you. To, I was hoping that you would be like, you know, they need to pick their game up a little bit. Oh well, that goes without saying. That does go without saying. It does go without saying. Um, you've sent some uh, some photos and videos through, and I've just got a little bit of a slideshow, and so I wanted to just um, play through a few of those. If I just quickly change this one over here. Um, uh, this is your daughter. It is. Yeah, this is Jess. Yep. Yeah, this is Jess, and and, and this was is sort of one of the of the the, the main reasons for people that haven't watched the third po uh, first podcast. I'll I'll link it up in the corner, um, but uh, this was to raise awareness and and funds uh, for a charity called Zero to Hero, mm. um, which is trying to prevent youth suicide as well. Yep, and right. and so this is a you know really worthy cause. And um, and can you talk a little bit about how how that all started for people that haven't listened to the first podcast? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, look, first of all, I, I mean, I, I didn't drag Jess into this unwillingly. Of course, yeah. Um, she, you know, she's. I think she's been incredibly courageous in allowing her story to be shared because it's you know it's quite a personal thing. But you know, she's she wants to help as well and and do what she can to help prevent other people going through what she went through. Um, but two, two and a half years ago, um, I came home to find that, that Jess had attempted to take her own life. She'd taken an overdose. Um, and, you know, on the outside, Jess is the happiest, well, look at the picture. I mean, she is the happiest, smiliest person you, you, can, you can meet. You'd ask her how she was. It was always good. It was always positive. And, you know, maybe I just didn't drill down deep enough, I guess. 
Um, I didn't push hard enough, but you know, there was clearly things going on inside that uh, she was struggling with. Um, and you know, and I, I didn't know, but she was suffering from depression and anxiety. Um, and um, yeah, anyway, look, we're, cute. we're two years on now. She's actually in the US at the moment. She's in Hawaii. Having a fab time doing Camp America, fantastic. So you know she's uh, she's in a much better place, but she, but it's taken it's hard been hard work for her. You know she's been through just been through a couple of weeks in in um, in Bentley Adolescent Unit, and she's been um, in working with a a um, psychologist for the last couple of years. So so you know she's come a long way since then, and it's an ongoing journey. Um, it's not something that you can fix overnight. It's you know in many ways people look at someone with a broken arm or a Something you know, and it's you can see what it is, you can see it get fixed, and you can see them getting better. With with mental health, you just don't, um, yeah. and it, it it is a journey. And you know, and she's she's doing great at the moment. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. And um, and is the link to the my course still still up and running? It is the fundraiser. Yes. Perfect. Well, I'll link that in the description of all these videos as well. So if yeah. uh, if you are watching or listening, it's um it's still time to uh to to donate there. Um, how much have you raised so far? So at the moment we're up to $110,000. That's fantastic. There's another 10 in the pipeline that I know is coming in, so that will get us to 120. Um, and we've got a target of 300, so we've got a bit of way to go. Yeah, but still, you know, 110 <laughs> yeah. is a fantastic is a fantastic number to be at. It is. Yeah, it is. yeah, really pleased. Really great. Yep. Um, all right, so those links will be in the description there. But if I click through onto the next uh, slide there, this was just prior to taking off, was it? Yeah, that's right. I think that was the Saturday or Sunday, and just I departed on the Wednesday. Switch this across to here, as you can see. Uh, all right, so just a few days before taking off there, and uh, and big tummy there. I was about to say, looking a little <laughs> thicker around the midsection. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, Rob. Now, when you first came in, it was about six or seven months, I think, before you ended up um, pushing off of mm. of uh, uh, off offshore, and you were only in the mid to high seventy kilo range. Yeah. And yeah. when when we were talking about it, you know, so how much how much weight do people lose on these cross ocean voyages and really depending on the length of time, it was like the 15 to 20 kilo range. So we're like, well, let's get you up to 100 kilos, right? Mm. That was the goal. And I think you pushed off just sub 100, about, you know, high 90s? 98 was where I peaked. I yep. actually dropped to about 96 by the time I left. Okay. Yeah. Just hard to maintain all those calories up in Carnarvon there? Hard to, uh, well, it was just hard to maintain generally. And then there's, you know, the stress of sort of the last week or so running around too much doing the last final things. Yeah. 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 So, so 90, 96 you pushed off at. What did you you weigh when you landed in Africa almost three months later? I was down to 80. Down to 80? Yeah. Okay, yep. so you lost 16 so kilos. Yep. So only a handful of kilos above the starting weight then. Yeah. The, the, uh, well, that's right, yeah, because before I started training, I was at pretty much sticking at 75-ish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've pretty much lost it all. Which is great because if you were floating yeah. around in some circular, you know, current in the middle of the ocean for another month, you know, we, mm. you would have definitely needed those extra extra few kilos of stored energy. I would indeed. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it was a good thing putting it all on. Yeah. yeah. No. Fantastic. But are you feeling a bit uh, a bit happier now, being a bit uh, more svelte? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Def definitely. I, I was not comfortable at that weight. It was just too much. Right. But it was just a means to an end. Yeah. Um, yeah. In that's the end. right. Yeah. Which is what a lot of people that um. Uh, need to realize when it comes to doing, you know, athletic feats or whether it's an endurance or strength, you know, you need to eat for performance and for what the, the task at hand is going to be. So mm. for you, that was putting on a heap of weight. And, and, and with that, it wasn't all fat mass. There was still a lot of lean mass that went on too because you were training weights and, and all those numbers were increasing really nicely before you left. Yeah. Um, but that was really good to see. And, uh, and you know, 
we can just say that the UWA help was was minor, but really it's all those strength gains in the gym here that really helped you, you know, power through the high seas. That was it. I'm sure that made yeah, one hundred percent perfect. All right, let me just flip back to uh to, um, I think the first video is of your cabin, um, and I have the ah uh, yes yeah I have the the volume off just because um, the microphones wouldn't pick it up anyway. But this is where you slept. It is yeah. So that little bit on the right, that white, sorry the um the, the blue sheet and the black black pillow. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And um and and can you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the the living conditions on the boat? Yeah, look, the bit swinging around in the middle that was that was the um, a sweatshirt that I took with me by mistake, and uh, and that was actually the best thing I took. Really? <laughs> yeah. Why is it, that? It, it hung there in the middle of the cabin the entire journey, but it was it just acted as a ceiling fan because when you I had to have the hatch shut the entire time I was down below, um, but the it was like a sweat box in there. It just cooked. Yeah. And um, and having that that uh, that that sweatshirt swinging around from side to side with the movement of the boat just gave me that little bit of breeze over over my head and and torso that I needed just to sort of stay a little bit cool. Yeah. And so. um, reading because uh, and, and again, if you want to you know get more sort of updates about this journey, you can go to the Rob's Row Facebook page, which is still up there. And Rob was giving quite regular updates um, on daily yeah, daily yeah. updates on yeah. this journey. And so it was kind of interesting seeing the things that you were having to deal with or figuring out sort of while you were out at sea. So mm. one being the cabin door would either lock completely closed, but it was like a sweat box for you. Yeah. Um, or you could risk it and have it locked in a slightly open position. Yeah. But when big waves would come overboard, it would wet your entire sleeping area. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that look, I mean, that towel that I slept on was always felt wet. Um, and and it you know because the salt's hydroscopic, so as soon as you get anything that that's that's uh, got salt on it, I mean you can see salt crystals on the boat during the day. The sun would dry them out, and there'd just be a dry salt crystal. And then as soon as the sun disappeared, it would be a water droplet because right. the salt just sucks up the water in the atmosphere, and it's a water droplet. And, and that's exactly what was happening on my on my clothing and towels and stuff down below and bedding. So everything was just just damp all the time. It's as soon as as soon as it was dusk, it just sucked up the water in the atmosphere and was and was wet yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. wow yeah it's horrible yeah um and then this video i believe you're talking about sort of the uh the 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 what you had to do every morning you push all your stuff to the side yeah that's right so it's, well my feet would normally be down to the left of that yellow bag so that's my my feet went down there and then i would try and sort of fill in those gaps uh well in rough weather i'd fill in those gaps with extra extra packing and storage yeah it's because when i capsized that everything would slide down to that corner right uh, but yeah there's the bed folded up and put away yeah so that when i get in and out i'm not stepping on my bed with wet feet yeah and uh yeah, give the give the uh towel a chance to dry <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as, as best it could yeah yeah um and and so this next video uh, I thought was really interesting because when you, before we left, I think we talked about it in the first podcast, you know, uh, how you at seasickness, you know, being out of sea, because you, you experienced sailor yourself, spent a lot of time on the ocean. And it wasn't something that you were too concerned about because you have quite a bit of experience um, sort of being out, um, being out at sea there. Uh, let me, sorry, let's flip this one over here. Uh, but you were surprised. You actually got quite seasick for, quite a while at the start yeah I, I, I was just looking back through some notes yesterday um i was seasick for up till about day 20 yeah um which really surprised me because as you say i've done lots of um ocean sailing and, and stuff and not been seasick so yeah it did come as a surprise but the motion on a rowing boat 
is totally different to that on a sailing boat. Yeah. So on a on a sailing boat, you've got that pitching where you're going forward and you know we're going through the waves and just up and down, forward and back, basically. With a rowing boat, you have that same motion, but you add to it this sideways rocking. Um, because you know, on a sailing boat, you've got the sails full of the wind, and that pressure on the on the boat keeps it leaning over at a steady angle. Um, but on a rowing boat, you don't have that. So every time there's a there's a wave that breaks or or a, or swell coming from a different direction, you get the boat rocking sideways as well as pitching up and down, forward and back. Yeah. Well, I think this video really captures that a lot as well. Um, you can just see how much moving. This is you said this is what you're seeing every uh, every morning when you come out of your cabin. Just the amount of movement there, and it, yeah. was this like a sort of standard sort of um, swell size for you during during your journey? Was it usually calmer than this, or like what, what would you do, how would you describe that? Um, that looks quite calm, actually. <laughs> that looks quite calm. <laughs> I mean, just no, looking no. at that 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 sort of tipping and rocking back and forth, I can see the people that that that. Uh, wouldn't have that sort of experience at sea would really struggle to it, sort of get their sea legs about them. It was pretty uncomfortable. It's but but you, but I, I mean you got used to that. I mean after that sort of day twenty, I, I I did, yeah. You just didn't really notice it. You just get on with it. But you, the, the the reason I say it was quite calm is the water is oh dead fish. <laughs> yeah, they, they, we're going to talk about these little flying yeah. fish as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there were, I mean there were days I'd come up and there'd be literally a hundred of them. I, I you know you'd lose count counting them. Wow. Um, and they just get everywhere <laughs> and uh i think the main question you know did you uh did you snack on any of them did you try them no i did not you no, didn't no no my dad was quite disappointed because i was in communication with him a fair bit going doing this crossing yeah um and he because he's he sailed across the indian ocean years ago yeah um and he said i should be collecting them all up and frying them yeah well i mean no, this no. is is a, clearly a hint from nature there saying you know make yeah. sure you're getting your nutrition and yeah 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 it would have been a bit of extra protein i guess but yeah no, it really did not appeal and i didn't have a i didn't have anything you know i didn't have a frying i had a, had a jet boil but no frying pan or oil or anything to cook them in right so that's my excuse well i mean you had yeah. seawater you could have just pickled them huh? i could yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's enough yeah. fresh fish and brine mm. um so seasick took you twenty days to get to get sort of used to, and you ended up having to take some tablets to to help with that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, in, initially, I had some prescription meds that my doctor gave me, which just uh, killed the nausea because I couldn't keep anything down. Either. Yeah, and that's C-sick what was tablets. worrying when when you were t- describing it because you were planning on eating sort of upwards of five thousand calories a day, and mm. if you can't keep anything down, you can't you can't eat that many calories no that's right um yeah. and so we're like well i hope that he can sort of get get over the seasickness so that he can get the calories in so he doesn't waste away in the first half of the of mm. the journey there yep. um also you were not a fan of a lot of those pre-made meals ready to eat i wasn't at the beginning you're oh, absolutely right, right. Yeah. yeah and I th- and the reason for that i'm sure is because i was trying to eat them whilst i was sick so you know and you know g- if you if you've ever thrown anything up you know it immediately puts you off that that it just i don't know that it just tastes horrible um and it takes a long time i think to get over something that you've thrown. you know it's like people who go and drink isn't it it's like oh i'm never going to drink again yeah yeah and uh, and they might but probably not possibly not the same thing that came up the night before um and it was like that with food i just yeah i just found the the taste of the anything that had previously been thrown up i just really struggled to eat 
but by but you know I got over it over time and towards the end all I could think about after one meal was what I was going to have next that I was positively looking forward to the food as it came yeah right so, so once you got over that initial bout of seasickness there and, and the food started to taste a little better were you able to get the 5,000 calories in per day or were you still um, no. at, at less than that yeah less than that so the most I ever got to was about 4,000 a day okay yeah yeah so I did I did struggle to get the food down right yeah um I think that's um, that's interesting. What, what did you do with all the leftover food? Because you took six months um, of rations with you. I did, yeah. So um, there are over four hundred odd odd meals still on the boat, um, and I've sold them with the boat. Looks like the boat sold. Hopefully, I'll get confirmation of that later today. But yeah, it looks oh, like it's sold. Fantastic. Yeah, I think um, when we did the last podcast, you weren't sure whether you were going to try to do a different crossing somewhere else, or if this is going yeah. to be a one and done type of deal. So you yeah. have um, sold the boat, you shipped it over back to the UK after it's, it's still in Tanzania. Oh, still in Tanzania. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. So it looks like it's been sold in Tanzania. So the, the new owner will take on shipping of it. He's going to take it to Namibia and row to Brazil. Oh wow! So another ocean to go. Yeah. Well, that's great. So no no wastage there. Those th that food got included with the uh, yeah. with the boat. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the next video that I have here, uh, this is you catching some runners. Is what you described it as on your on your Facebook page. So catching runners. So mm. um, this is when the swell sort of lines up in in the correct direction that you're that you're traveling, and you can just get a couple big rows in and just sort of catch those waves. That's right. Yeah, you just give an extra big push just as you're sort of at the top of the wave and surf down it and it just gives and you an extra this part looks really quite fun oh it was fantastic yeah was like and how long would these stretches go for when you're when everything was lining up for you um look when to, to get the waves that size and these are you know these are quite modest waves so to get them consistently at that kind of size didn't happen very often there were plenty of occasions where they were a lot bigger um and but mostly they were on what we call on a with a, in a beam sea so on your side yeah, and when they're on the when they're hitting you at the side, then it's yeah, it's not quite so good because you, you know, that's when you're in danger of capsized. Right. But but when it was like that, it was cracking. Yeah, yeah it's really good. And, and, and that did uh, you you mentioned your post that you found that the the easiest way to row was was just in the nude. Yeah, that that's right. So I'm I'm sitting there on a um, on a sheepskin. Yeah. And um, you know the, the issue with wearing clothing is that you get salt sores. So by by being naked and sitting on sheepskin, the sheepskin wicks away the the, the salt, um, and uh, yeah, you get minimal minimal salt sores, minimal problems sitting on your bum all day. Yeah, and you you did do a couple of little interviews while you're on on your way across with the news, and you've been you, you got Don was as the naked rower, as yeah, the, that, the new nickname. That's right. Yeah, that's, yes, a, that's so. a good name, Rob the naked rower. Yeah, they're trying to trying to transfer that down at the surf club, and they're calling me Starkers, but uh, yeah. Hasn't stuck yet. Hasn't stuck yet? Yeah, it's only a matter of time, really. Rob. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> now, you've talked about sort of um, capsizing, and it did happen a couple of times when you were out there? Three. Had three capsizes. Three capsizes. So the yep. whole boat's tipped over, or it's just flung you out of the boat? Uh, so so the two, occasion, two occasions I was on deck, and the boat went upside down, so 180 degrees, and then wow. it came back the same way. So it wasn't a 360 roll. Um, but it was upside down because I can, you know, sitting in the water looking up at it, it was definitely upside down. Um, but, and then it sort of slowly came back the right way. And this boats are meant to self-right? 
They are. That's right. So they've got a big. Um, they've got you know the fore cabin is 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 raised um, over height so that when it when it's sitting in the water, it's just not stable the wrong way up mm. and it pushes it around the right way again. Yeah. Well, and so that was just sort of like a rogue wave that would send it over, or or how did that how did that happen? Um, it, it was more a case of timing. So um, so yeah, when you're rowing in a beam sea, all of the waves, um, you know, you can see the waves, but breaking you know in the distance close to you and you know most of them you know you only have to go down to the ocean and look out at the ocean and you'll see breaking waves um on you know on a rough on a rough day but they don't all break at the same time so it, it, it a lot of it comes down just to it's just a numbers game you know if you if you're consistently out there all day rowing in a beam sea with breaking waves eventually one of them's going to get you right um but you know they'd be breaking just in front of you just behind you um you know to the just before they get to you or just after you go past them and all in all of those cases you know most of those cases fine wasn't a problem it's when it it's when the the they all align and it breaks literally as you are just sitting on top of it basically or just just before you get to it yeah um and it then it breaks on top of the boat and pushes you over um it doesn't always capsize you well mostly it doesn't mostly it will ca- it'll break onto the boat and just you know water everywhere and go sideways a bit yeah um so yeah it's just a matter of timing but you know and there is a way to avoid it you, if, if it was really really huge and that you were in danger of um i don't know if it, if the frequency of the capsizes was going to be increased and it you know every wave was breaking then you put out a sea anchor which would puts the nose of the boat into the into the bad weather and that's basically a, a sort of like a giant underwater parachute that's right yeah. yeah exactly that and and that that will stop you from um capsizing but it then means that you're not going in the right direction right so you've always got that that sort of quandary to you know way up is do i take the risk and and hope i don't capsize too much yeah or go the wrong way and so two times that happened you were rowing on deck and then one time you're in your cabin i was yes day or night uh, night, I was fast asleep. Yeah. Fast asleep. Yeah. So what's that yeah. like getting tossed upside down in the middle of the night, pitch black? Yeah, that that is a little disconcerting, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you end up with everything then on top of you because, you know, where, where my feet go, um, at that sort of bottom end of the boat, um, you know, there's toolboxes and storage and food and so all sorts of things stowed there and they all end up on top of you, sort of wedged in a bit and then you have to wiggle and move them all back again. Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. That's uh, definitely be a bit, bit, bit concerning to be waking up uh, completely disoriented, upside down, everything on top of you. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And then, but you, I, I suppose you get some preparation for that because you know capsize is the worst. Um, but there are lots of occasions where you only go you know ninety degrees over and everything ends up kind of on top of you anyway. So you you get, you, I suppose, you get some training for it if you like before it. Yes. Before the worst of them happens. So, yeah, right. So it's not and, a complete surprise. And when you're in the cabin, you know, and that cabin's locked, so you're not at risk of falling out. But when you're on the uh, when you're on the, the the deck of the rowing boat, uh, you were attached to the boat um, in some regard in case something like this happened. I, I, I was, yeah. That, in fact, that picture you had of the deck earlier, um, you could see the, the the leg leash sitting sit, sitting there. Yeah, so that one there, that's my my leg leash sitting there in the middle. The um, strap sitting on top of the seat okay so, so you so would just it. constantly just have it attached to your leg yes yeah yeah so like a leg leash that you'd wear for a surfboard but just a slightly heavier duty the vicobi one yeah um, but with a much stronger um webbing strap to it as mm. well and then that would go back to a, a a throwing line that was attached to the boat so there's about 10 meters of line on it so the idea was that if i did get chucked out um, i'd be clear of the boat 
Um, yeah. I'd be able to swim back and it wouldn't roll on top of me. Right. And then I'd wait for things to settle down and swim back and, and climb, or pull myself back on the rope and, yeah. and climb on. And, uh, and and we'll look at it in the um, – actually, we'll, we'll, it's a good chance to go across. We're going to go to um, when you had to actually clean the bottom of the boat sometimes. So yeah. you had to actually jump off the boat. And, and in case like this, you were attached to it. And then you also had the trailing line behind did, the boat. I, yeah, I had the trailing line behind the first couple of times I did it. And then I figured I, I didn't bother. Rob, <laughs> yeah, so I just, this has been a bit risky there. Well, I had the leg leash on. So I was had confidence in my leg leash. Okay. Yeah. And so um, what was it like jumping off? Because I, I think, you know, when I Googled it uh, before, the deepest part of the Indian Ocean was about seven kilometers deep. Do you know how deep um, sort of you, you, you were um, at, at the deepest part? Uh, well, the first time I jumped in, I jumped in on, I'm trying to remember the name of the ridge, but but it was only, only two kilometres deep. Only two kilometres deep. <laughs> but, um, and then on, on a, the other occasions, I think it was up at between three and five. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a deep ocean. For sure. it, when, when you look down, just, just blackness? blackness? Absolutely, yeah. Can't see a thing. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, and there was one time when I did go for a swim where it was... Uh, that was off, off Il Raphael, and I think it was only supposed to be 25 meters, and I couldn't see the bottom there either. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. Just all stirred up a bit. I was quite I was surprised. But, yeah. yeah. Um, what did you and, – and so this is people that are watching. This is the, the, the leash rope, and then the mm. one to the right is the, the, the trailing rope? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so that trailing rope, you said you didn't leave it out for the most part. It was only when you were going off to clean? I only put it out on a couple of occasions when I cleaned. Yeah, it, it was otherwise it was tied up to the boat. And the, and the last couple of times I cleaned, I didn't put it out at all. Yeah, just relied on the leg leash. Fair enough. Yeah. So w w once you'd cleaned the bottom, mm. um, you know, scrubbed the little barnacles, and that's what it was—little barnacles attaching to the bottom of the boat. They—they they were actually quite big. They, they, I, I don't know what they were. They're some, some kind of shellfish or other, but they were about um, 25, 30 mil long. Oh wow! So I don't know whether they—they uh, they can't have grown that big. They must be sort of swimming in the water and then just find the boat and attach themselves to it because yeah. I, I can't imagine they'd grow that quickly. Okay, so you scrape those yeah. off, help help with the um, with the, with yeah. the steering and and, and and the smooth uh, rowing. But then, how did you get back onto the boat? So that that was um, so, so when when I was swimming, then I sort of had that lined up and planned. So I had a a line that was over the side that had a little footstep in it, so I could use that to leaving myself back out but there's only the boat's only about um i don't know 18 inches what's that in millimeter 45 centimeters yeah. um, of freeboard so there's so you know it's just a case of get your arms over big kick wait yeah. for the boat to rock in the right direction and and push pull yourself back on board yeah fantastic but um but it's it's harder to do that when it's when it's when you get thrown in because mm. you you know it's not so so planned and also you you I was naturally out of breath, I guess, from the sort of uh, the adrenaline kick. Oh, yeah. And, and then you just have to, you know, get yourself half on board, relax, take a big breath, <laughs> you know, and, and and then so it might take a bit, little bit longer. Um, but you just, yeah, you, you hang on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, you, you crossed a few shipping channels as mm. you went as well. Yeah. But there was big stretches where you saw no signs of, of human life out there, right? That's right, yeah. In fact, it, it was, I mean, I saw a ship, I think, on day day one or two that picked up on, so I had an, something called AIS, which is an automatic, ooh, automatic, indi I, I can't remember what it stands sure. for. Um, but anyway, it, 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 I had a transponder on my boat, which, which transmits my position to all other ships, and ships are obliged to have AIS, so they can 
So they transmit their position as well. And, and so I had an alarm set on my system that meant that if anyone was on a collision course with me or going to come within a certain distance, then my alarm would go off and I'd see them. Um, and that went off on day, I can't remember if it was first or second night, and then nothing for months, um, well, certainly weeks. Um, I didn't see anything until I was halfway across, I think I saw something. And then, and then as I got closer to, um, to Mauritius, there's a very busy shipping lane that runs from the south of, uh, south of Africa up to uh, the Straits of Malacca, up sort of Singapore, Malaysia. I think it's the busiest shipping lane in the world. Wow. But even then, I didn't see a lot of the ships. I, I saw quite a few on my electronic systems, but to physically see them, I'm so low on the water. Um, the horizon for me is only about six to seven miles away. Um, and so these ships were coming up on my system as being sort of seven, eight, nine miles away. And I couldn't see them. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, but but it was, a, yeah, there's lots of them. Yeah. And um, some unfortunate um uh, observations that you said that you did see a lot of trash uh, out there, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of waste and rubbish. Yeah, particularly in the shipping lanes. And um, I think I think you know one of the issues we've got with 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 ships is when they get to port, they have to pay to dump their rubbish. Well, when they're out at sea, they just chuck it over the side, and then they've got to pay. Mm. So, you know, we I think I think you know at a global level, something needs to be done there that, so that ports don't charge for collecting rubbish, or they include it in the port fees or something. And give them some kind of an incentive to to bring it back because it's you know already there are laws in place that say that they're not supposed to chuck it over the side, but clearly they're not being adhered to. Yeah, great shame. Was it quite quite prevalent? I mean, you saw a yeah. fair bit of trash floating around. A, a lot, a lot. You know, it was if, if if you think that from my from my rowing position, I can only see um, five to ten meters either side of the boat when I'm you know when I'm sitting down. If I stand up, obviously I can see further, but. But I was fairly going through those shipping lanes. I was seeing trash. Oh, I don't know every few minutes, mm. um, and and if you sort of extrapolate that and say, well, if that's what you're seeing in a twenty meter wide stretch of water, what is it in a hundred meters, and then in ten miles, and you know, and you it's just, probably a fair fair bit of trash out there. There's a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and for those listening, you actually carried all of your waste on board. You had some compartments that. Mm. Um, that you stored that all in, and then and then disposed of correctly on the African side. So I, I did. Your yeah. journey was a was a waste free free journey. It was. I, I mean, I do confess to losing a couple of water bottles over the side when I capsized, but but um, but basically all of my rubbish came back with me. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, it, so that was you know minimal human uh, apart from some trash going through those shipping lanes and a few ships. Uh, what about wildlife? Because I know that you posted that you were surprised at the lack of wildlife that you saw out there. And, and we weren't yeah. sure because I know the Indian Ocean can be very rich in wildlife if you're going to be seeing whales breaching and, and whatnot. What, what was your experience with that? Yeah, it's, it's quite funny. The, the first first or second day I got back here, I went for a row down at Mullaloo Beach and saw four dolphins, which was more dolphins than I saw on the entire crossing of three months. So yeah, I didn't see any dolphins, um, no no whales. I saw three sharks. Um, I saw some fish jumping, um, some quite big fish, um, and I saw a few birds. So so um, storm petrels and um, shearwaters and albatross. How close were the sharks? Were they coming up just to investigate the boat? Yeah, I think so. So they were, yeah, very close. Um, Did you tell what, what kind? I I I think one of them had the colourings of a leopard shark. Um, if there is such a thing, um, it was you know that kind of yellowish color. Um, the other two, I've no idea. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, that you know was that in the back of your mind when you were jumping overboard to clean to it, clean the boat? <laughs> it's quite funny actually. Before I left, I was sort of you know people were saying you know what you're going to get in and I was sort of you know full of bravado and oh yes I'll be over the side every every three or five days give it a scrub you know no trouble but when it came to it it was you know standing on the edge for that first time before jumping in it was um it was quite an uncomfortable feeling yeah 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 um so I wasn't quite so keen when it came to it yeah um but you know you kind of get in and and, and it's funny actually once you've been in for five minutes because it because cleaning the boat it was it was about an hour's job wow so and, and obviously it's in the back of your mind you know you're forever looking over your shoulder when you first get in and then you get stuck into the job and forget about it and just get on with it mm. um but yeah it is it's definitely there at the back i think of that would mind. be a very uncomfortable feeling for a lot of people yeah you can yeah. get the old jaws moved music playing in the back of your head Ooh, you? yeah Jordan. lovely yeah. um so so what else did you yeah. sort of discover um because you found out quite early on there, there were some things that had that weren't quite watertight and and you know you had to do some uh, some fixes on the go um, later on in the journey uh, with your uh, your wheels the roller co the coasters on the um, on the slides were starting to break down so you're able to salvage some off of the um, off of the spare seat um, what sort of things did you have to deal with during this process because three months at sea things are going to you know potentially break down and, and some things did and um, and you didn't have the boat for a super long time before you left so there was minimal sort of time to see what was going to be uh, what were potential issues so so what sort of issues did you actually end up encountering my look my number one concern before i left was was around my water makers i, I say water maker it's it's a desalination unit so it takes the takes the salt out pumps the water through a very fine membrane salt goes one way salt water goes one way and fresh water the other and um and and that so I actually took that out of the boat and had it in the garage on a workbench and um, and Neil my my shore based ops manager and I you know we we played with it if you like you know we simulated scenarios with where it could go wrong um, we forced airlocks into it um, and then tried to not tried and then primed the system and, and you know so we so we played with that a bit and that was time that was really well spent because every time I needed to use it. Um, say every nine nine times out of ten it needed priming and there's a bit of a process to doing that correctly so you know having done that practice before I left it was a good call yeah great um, and I had spares for that so I had you know had a spare high pressure pump and relay and not only did I have spares for that for that uh, electrical unit which is powered by batteries which are charged by solar but but I also had a a manual water maker um, had I needed to you know if I'd lost power yeah so, so you know, from a water point of view, well prepared, um, and I'm pleased to say that, that that worked beyond having to prime it. There was no other issues with it. Um, but as you say, um, other issues I had, uh, I, I, I had a leak in the boat, which I discovered on day two, um, and that was basically from a, from a bit of electrical equipment that I had fitted just before leaving, and the conduit that was used on it was not the right conduit basically and it was just letting water um through from the wet side of the boat into what should have been the dry side of the boat so so yes yeah, so i ended up with water in the in that sleeping compartment that we were looking at earlier there's a couple of inches of water in that which i didn't notice because i was rowing came down below everything wet that was really disconcerting and that's quite early on that was day two i think day it two. was day two or three yeah yeah and, and in fact at that point i actually turned around and came back um, I was, I was, I was really seasick, well, it's really seasick. 
Um, I hadn't eaten for two or three days. I say two or three because I can't actually remember when it was, and I didn't write this up until day five or six or something, and it was the days had blurred a bit. But mm. but I, I, th I think it was day two or three, and I, I called Neil, my shore manager, and said, "Look, I've I've um, I've had enough. <laughs> um, I'm coming back. Um, boat's leaking. Boat's not. You know, I was blaming the boat. It, the boat was fixable. You know, I, in the end, I did fix it." But, you know, I started this adventure, if you like, as a, for purely selfish reasons. It was just about me going out and having a good time. Mm. Um, and it was whilst I was rowing back, I'd been rowing back for a couple of hours, it sort of dawned on me that actually there were other reasons that I was doing this Yes, for. yeah. You know, I was doing it for my daughter. I was doing it to raise money for charity. Um, and, you know, and those reasons were, were bigger than I. And so, so, I, so off the back of that, I turned around again and, and carried on. And, you know, and the, the problems I had, you know, they were issues, but... I was able to overcome them. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you manage to get it watertight again? So I had some sealant with me. So once I, so I took the conduit out um, and then sealed up the, the, the um, hole. So it was just going onto the, the bare wires. I say bare wires. The, 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 um, they put rubber sheaths on, but, but just going directly to the wires without the conduit. Um, and that sealed up that hole. The, the other um, areas I had was the aft locker, the aft cabin was leaking through the, through the vents. So I had to seal up the vents as well. Um, and, that, and that solved 99% of the problems. I mean, there was a vent into the cabin that I slept in as well, but I didn't seal that. I closed it, but uh, in fair weather, I would keep it open. Yeah. And um, you, you did lose some Mars bars to the uh, to, to to the conditions. Yeah, tragic. Yeah. yeah. So so those little uh, plastic Mars bar wrappers, not not so watertight as you would think. No, they're not. No, yeah. no. So um, yeah. So I, I, I mean, because yeah, I'd stored all of my chocolate, and I had you know like five hundred chocolate bars. It was supposed to be like one and a half per. No, it can't be right. One and a half chocolate bars a day for hundred. There must have been three hundred odd chocolate bars anyway. Yeah. So it was a lot of chocolate. <laughs> Um, and a, yeah, a good chunk of it was was um, was damaged to the point that I had to yeah throw the chocolate overboard. Oh no! I removed the wrappers. You'd be pleased. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I remember reading that post. You are wondering what fish think of uh, of of Mars bars. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is uh, that is funny. And then the 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 rollers. So the wheels on the actual um, oh, yeah. seat started to break down at a certain point as well. Yeah, that's right. So, so um, and it's quite funny actually because the day I was leaving, one of the guys up at Carnarvon Yacht Clubs sort of noticed my my, which are basically skateboard wheels. So you know, heavy duty, um, you know, decent decent bearings. And he said, "Oh, I hope you've got some spares." And I said, I "said oh, I've got a whole spare seat, which because it's a two man boat, mm. so I had spare seat with a complete set of spares on that." And uh, so I've got a complete spare seat. That'll be fine. But um, I should have put that spare seat somewhere dry and oh, not right. left it out on deck yeah because when the, the the primary seat that i was using when the bearings on that started to break down um i went to get the ones off the spare seat and because they'd been sat unused in salt water for seven eight weeks they were not in a very good state either right so and was it yeah. just the salt and the corrosion that was sort of getting into the bearings and, and breaking things down yeah yeah so on uh, so on the seat that i was on um you know, I took the bearings out, and they had the linings of the bearings. They had actually eaten away the the linings, so the balls were okay, um, the little little ball bearings. But the bits that they rub on the actual, you know, the linings bits had, had broken down and were all rough and yeah, 
very messy. So by the time you eventually got to um, to Africa, like, did you, how many spares did you have left? Like, how much did you have to cannibalize the other the other seat? I fully cannibal cannibalized. Fully cannibalized fully, it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I had no. I was at the point where had it got any worse, I would have to just not have a sliding seat. Right. Yep, I would have just been rowing arms and body, no no legs. And that's just one of those things that you, you would just, common sense would tell you, oh, a whole spare seat is going to be plenty of spare parts, yeah. but just that oversight of not keeping it in the cabin away from all the salt. Mm. Um, yeah, that could really throw a spanner in things if yeah. things went for longer. Yeah, look, if I was doing this again, I would take spare bearings and and I would you know take at least a spare a spare set for every month probably so, yeah so yeah and then, and then i'd change them proactively and not wait for them to break down and right make horrible noises yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um okay so that's in terms of sort of how the boat held up you know the boat held up very well there was yeah. some cleaning um a little bit of patchwork at the start um some cannibalizing of 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 the seat um what about you physically how did how did you go did you get a lot of blisters from the salt water on the hands you know you were worried mm. about getting some claw grip which can be common with with open sea crossings um sort of physically how, how did you pull up so I, I was really focused on prevention being better than cure so every time so you know the, the early very early days i had um I, I picked up some sort of chafing sores on my bum um and so I was straight away, you know, lanolin on those, um, which is, you know, comes from sheep's wool. I was sitting on a sheep's sheepskin, so that kind of was common sense to me. Um, and then at night time, I'd put on pseudocreme, which is what you put on babies that uh, stop nappy rash. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that that helped with where I was sitting. My hands, um, I used some, one of the rowers at the surf club, Stu, he gave me a top tip. He he, he said, use this fixamol tape on your line your hands and then to put on top of the fixable some um just uh gauze um, what's it called um basically like tape on top of it anyway to keep yeah. it keep it in place um and i did that for the first three or four days um and then after that i started using gloves and and taking the gloves off and doing you know an hour or so without gloves and gradually I weaned myself off gloves to the point where I wasn't using them at all, except for when I was rowing into the wind. When I was rowing into the wind or into seas, it was quite a lot of extra strain on the hands. Right, just that more pressure that you had to pull against? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And when that when so when I had that extra pressure, then I'd put the gloves back on. But apart from that, I was, yeah, didn't, didn't need them. And I, and I avoided blisters on my hands almost entirely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. really good. Um, so, but it, but it really was just about, you know, doing the right thing and, and not, you know, recognizing if you've got to feel that blister coming up quickly, do something before it, before it gets to be a big one, Yeah. um, you know, and tape, tape it up or wear gloves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, mentally. All right. So physically good boat held up well, mm. mentally, what was it like? Cause you know, you, you had said that you were quite comfortable, um, just being by yourself, you know, you've done a bit of sailing by yourself as well. So you didn't think that was going to be an issue. Did you find that that did become an issue at three months uh, sort of time being at sea? Yeah, I, look, I, I, I was fine being on my own. The, the, the mental bit was more about the, oh God, I, you know, it's like I was, I, I, I was looking back at my notes the other day and it was like I was a month into it and it was, you know, congratulations on being a third of the way in. And I'm thinking, that means I've got two thirds to go. <laughs> it's like, which and that was quite, well, that was quite depressing. Realizing that, you know, it, it should have been a celebration, but it, it really wasn't. And the same when I got to the halfway mark. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I've, you know, the next half is going to be tougher. I knew it was going to be tough going 
the, the, the last bit from Madagascar onwards. Mm. So it's like, okay, well, I've done the easy half. I've got the hard half to get. Yeah. So it's quite negative in that way. But I think those experiences were quite short lived. I did get over it. I was able to sort of pull myself out of that and and, um, and just not think about it. Yeah. Just don't dwell on it. It's just another day. Mm. Did you find it easier or harder the closer you were getting? Uh, I was really interested in, in, in your mindset there, whether you would be like, all right, I've passed Madagascar now. I'm on the home stretch. Like, was that a energy boost for you? Or was it like, oh, I'm so close, but I'm still maybe three weeks away, a month away, you know, whatever it's going to be. Like, how did, um, how did, how did you... How did you find that? I look. I, I really tried hard not to focus on a on an end date, because I knew that if I did, I would just, you know, it's nothing worse than missing it. So for me, I was very much a case of taking one each day as it as it came and just not, not worrying about. It, it, it got a bit, a little bit, I suppose, towards the end. Once, because again, you know, Neil, my shore manager, he he booked flights. Um, went to Dar es Salaam to meet me. I missed Dar es Salaam. Then he went to Tanga. Um, <clears throat> and so, so just before we continue, was that just purely where the conditions, it was too hard to sort of get the correct uh, boat path into the original port that you had planned? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's right. So the, there's really strong currents that run up uh, through the Mozambique Channel and go, go north um, up to, um, well, they go all the way up to Somalia. So... And the current splits. So the current that I, you know, and I was, and you can see where these currents are from infrared cameras in the sky or satellite or whatever it is. But anyway, so we were looking at, or Neil was looking at these and telling me, you know, you need to get further west or you're going to end up in that northern current and you're going to be in Somalia, mm. which is not where I wanted to go. No. <clears throat> yeah, so Neil was saying that, uh, you know, he, he could see where these currents were on the, on the, satellite images that he was looking at and and if i wasn't careful i was going to end up in the northbound current not the northwest right um i did manage to get into the northwest current but the the forecast was consistently telling us that we were going to be getting southeasterlies and we were consistently getting southwesters right so i was being blown in the wrong direction um with a current that was pushing me in the wrong direction and and that that was yeah that 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 did get to me a little bit um but you know you you have to be a, you have to be a bit pragmatic with these things. You know, you, there's nothing you, you can't in a little rowing boat that will do. With you know, when I'm rowing at full speed with no wind and no current, I'm only getting one and a half two knots out of it. So it's not it's not a performance machine by any stretch. So you know you're at you are at the mercy of the wind and the currents. So you just can't, can't have to accept it. And it, and you know, and Somalia wouldn't have been ideal, but it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Right. Um, you know, there was a guy, a rower, who went there the year before. And in fact, he got in touch with us. He was in touch with Neil and saying, don't let him go to Somalia. It's an awful place. You know, he had a really tough time there. But, you know, he survived. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a preferred destination. Yeah. But it would have, you know, we would have made it work. Yeah. And Tango, where you ended up, uh, how far north was that of the original, um, uh, you know, destination that you were planning to, to land at? Ooh, um, I think it's about 100 and 50 miles, something like that. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah. Um, some questions that people in the gym had as well mm. were, did he have to sort of visa out before he left? Did he just sort of tell the ports, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm rowing there and I'll sort it out when I get there? Like, how does that work? Sort of the logistics and the paperwork behind it. Yeah, I, I called the embassy. So the embassy for Australia is actually in Japan for, for um, Tanzania. All right. So I, I got in touch with the embassy in Japan um, and uh, they told me that if I was flying in, I would need a visa. 
But if you arrive by boat, they'll do visa on arrival. Oh. So nice and easy. Excellent. So you just had to take your passport with you and... Yeah. Yeah. And they, in fact, they came down, they had a, a, a someone monitoring the port. Um, so they saw me coming in and they had, and they were also notified by the yacht club as well. Um, but they had somebody down at the water's edge to meet me as I arrived. Yeah. Um, paperwork's not quite that efficient that they can stamp your passport there and then. So they can, they can basically, you know, they kind of sign you in, but you then have to bit of a process you have to then go into the town pay your fee um and get your passport stamped at that point right after you've paid but there's a bit of a yeah, it's a bit of a process yeah bureaucratic but anyway that's what, what was it like jumping off the side of the boat and touching solid ground after three months at sea uh, it was it was it was fantastic but but i i i, I was i've surprised myself in, in that i yeah i couldn't stand up i i um yeah hit the ground and it, it it was weird. It was like um, it was a drunk feeling. Yeah, um, I am. Um, I, I didn't have that one on the uh, on the slideshow, but I'll I'll superimpose because I had that video uh, right. right now as you're talking about yeah. it. Yeah, when you jump off, you're sort of stumbling around and you, yeah. your legs couldn't hold you there. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then uh, and then just walking up the beach afterwards, it was like wandering from side to side, like yeah. a, like a drunken sailor. Yeah. How long did it take to get to get like land legs back? I guess. Um, so that first day night, I mean, literally, I was, yeah, very much, very wobbly on my feet. That that, and then the next, it, it took about each time I stood up and each time I woke up, then I was mentally still at sea. Like I sort of still had that was wobbly, but once I'd walked a couple of paces, I was okay again. Nice, but it, but it, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, strange feeling. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think that's. Basically, everything that I had dotted down that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you want to talk about? Anything that I've missed that you experienced that you want to share about this journey? Um, I suppose just sort of getting towards the end. Um, there was a, you know, a couple of hiccups at, at the end because I got to um, had a cracking row down alongside Zanzibar, sort of really the really strong current dance. This was after I'd missed Dar es Salaam, so I had to recognize I was going to have to go the other side of Zanzibar. Mm. And... Um, and then got to the northern tip of Zanzibar, and the wind completely died. And the and I, and, you know, I was in the, the the shelter of Zanzibar, if I say minimal current. And then started rowing across about a twenty-five mile stretch from Zanzibar to to um, Tanzania. Started rowing across that stretch of water, and the wind turned, and uh, it, it, it to a westerly. So it was blowing me offshore. The current, but the, 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 I then having gone through slack current in the on the northern tip of Zanzibar then and go then moved into a, another current that was that runs between Zanzibar and the and uh, Tanzania that was taking me north again so current taking me the wrong way wind blowing me offshore and uh and it was at that point I was I was I was probably most concerned because you know it was it was within sight of of um of arriving basically within sight of sort of the end of this voyage and suddenly i couldn't go there um so i had to turn around head back to zanzibar um just north of zanzibar there's there are shoals so i went to those shoals anch anchored up on those shoals and spent 24 hours there waiting for the wind to, to, to change yeah but that was uh yeah that was a little <laughs> that was a little worrying you know that close to the to the finish line to suddenly get the wrong wind right um but um, yeah, but it all came good in the end. Yeah, managed to managed to get that yeah. final home stretch locked in. Yeah, yeah. And so now that this sort of quest has been accomplished, finished, 
um, what, what's what's next? You know, what's on the what's on the cards? Well, <laughs> so I, I I've been um, I've been trawling the internet looking for sort of ideas of of, of what. I'd quite like to check, so I'd, and I'd like to—I'd really like to redo that row in a sailing boat. Um, but I'm thinking that before I do it in a sailing boat, that I'd also like to do a round Australia in a sailing boat. And I've—I've I've done a bit of research on this, and it looks like the the speed record for round Oz is 42 days, and I'd like to have a crack at beating that record. All right. Yeah. So 42 days—that's days, you know starting at one point, so, uh, going all the way around Australia back to that um, starting point. That's right. All yeah. right. Yeah. And, and where did that one take place? So you know where do they start? They—I think the last one started either in Brisbane or Sydney. There've been a, been a couple. I think there might be two records that stand at the moment for two different types of boats, and I think one was in Sydney and one was Brisbane. Okay. And would you be trying to get on one of those boats to break that record, or do do your own style? Or it's, yeah. So I'd I'd. I'm looking at the Mini Transat 650, which is a six and a half meter boat, very small boat. So they do a foiling version of it. It might be a bit small. So I, I need to do a bit more research and find the right boat and then find the right sponsor. Right. So, yeah, if you're thinking, of, if you're looking for a sponsorship opportunity. There we go. Yeah. And this is, would this be for the same, for the same cause, Zero yeah. to Hero? Yeah. So absolutely. just keep, keep it going, but in a yeah. different fashion? Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Well, that's very exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing how this progresses Great. And, uh, and, and what the future holds there. Yeah. Great. Well, look, Rob, thanks so much for coming back in. I really appreciate it. And I Thank just you. think the whole thing is super interesting. And, and I think it's great that you got there and the first person to do it in this fashion yep. um, and for a great cause. And like I said, I will post that link. Uh, I will post that link uh, in all the descriptions. So if you want to um, or if you can, um, please feel free to get in there and, and, and throw some donations towards a, a great cause. But, uh, but Rob, thank you one more time. Um, I think that was really uh a fantastic thing that you've that you've accomplished thank you very much awesome Cheers actually up. i'm going to take you outside you've already got a frame on our wall of accolades now oh great yeah which is great oh, so. have a look. 100 percent thanks very much thank mate you. great have a good one thanks a lot right.